submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And I'm going to talk about nothing in particular to give John a moment to take his guitar off. And now I'm going to sit down. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nathan, for that little bit of a breather. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray as we begin to think about God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being so worthy of our praise, our adoration, our worship. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that as we've read about already and as we will look at now, that you love your church. Help us to understand that. Uh, this isn't a particularly complicated passage for us to, to understand, but it's a, a spiritual passage, and so we need your Holy Spirit's help. And so we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder what the best wedding you've ever been to was. Um, if you're married, I hope that it was your own wedding. Um, it might not have been, uh, for all sorts of reasons. But, but the w best wedding you've ever been to, what was it that made it so special? Uh, was it the food? You know, some people have some really great catering. Uh, was it the dancing? Some of you love to dance. Uh, was it the speeches and the, the ceremonies and the, the kind of traditions? What, what was it that made you really enjoy that particular wedding? All those things are great. All those things make a wedding really quite special. But the main thing that makes uh, a wedding really special is the two people getting married. Uh, take away the happy couple, and all you've got is a, a bit of a party. The, the joy comes for all of us as we uh, see two people, usually people that are pretty special to us, joining together and sharing in their joy as they commit to one another and begin their new lives together. And so this morning, as part of our, our series 
uh, called What is Church? Uh, we're going to be thinking about church as a bride. So a few weeks ago, we saw that uh, church is like a building, and that uh, last week we saw church is like a flock of sheep. Uh, and those images have been really helpful as we think about what church is like, uh, and how God treats the church, and how he speaks about the church in the Bible. So if, if church is a building, we, we see God as the builder, uh, a craftsman, uh, someone who can make something beautiful from a load of people that the world would have rejected. Uh, and if church is a flock, we see Christ as our shepherd who cares and provides uh, and, and protects his sheep. And as we'll see this morning, if church is a bride, then Christ is the one who loves us, who commits to us and who leads us into a new life together with him. And so just as the, the joy of a wedding is primarily in the couple that are getting married, there's also great joy for us as we consider the ultimate wedding. Uh, in the Bible reading we've just had from Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wants to teach the church at Ephesus all about what a godly Christian life looks like. And having talked about living a, a spirit-filled life, a, a life transformed by the life of God himself, he goes on to tell us what this spirit-filled life looks like in, in practice. And so he says that uh, being a Christian will, will change our relationships with those around us. And he, he starts particularly, in these verses, talking about how Christ transforms our, our view and our, our understanding and our experience of what marriage is like. And so normally when we look at passages like this, we would want to apply it directly to our marriage situations, our marriage relationships, which is understandable, given that that's pretty much why Paul wrote it. And Paul gives specific commands to husbands and wives about how to treat each other. Uh, but this morning I'm not going to focus on that so much. Uh, firstly, because we're primarily talking about the church in a series called What is the Church? Uh, but secondly, this passage isn't just for married people. Uh, it's not even uh, just for people who might want to be married one day. It's for all of us that are Christians. Because it describes the wedding that we all, as Christians, will one day be a part of. And so it's a wedding that will make even that best earthly wedding you've ever been to, it'll just pale into insignificance. So we're going to look at this passage upside down this morning. Uh, we're starting at verse 31 and verse 32, and then we're going to work our way back up. Uh, so verse 31 and verse 32, we see that the church is not just a bride. Uh, the church is not like a bride. The church is the bride, uh, the bride of Christ. And I don't know if this works, but we'll try and get it on. You move on. Uh, so the church is the bride of, of, of Christ. Which came first? the chicken or the egg. You, you know the saying, uh, you know the phrase, uh, if the chicken came first, then where did it hatch from? Uh, if the egg came first, then who laid the egg in the first place? And it's a bit of a silly question in some ways, and if we believe Genesis 1, it seems likely that God created full-grown chickens, but that's a different story. It, it might seem a bit of a silly way of looking at this, but we use that saying when we're not sure of the logical order that things come in. Uh, we have another phrase like it called putting the cart before the horse. Uh, things need to have their proper order, their proper priority. And so what are we dealing with when we think of marriage? Well, did marriage between a man and a woman come first? And so we're to think of 
of the relationship between Christ and the church as being a little bit like that? Well, Paul tells us that actually, even from the beginning of creation, God had in mind the wedding to end all weddings. Uh, Verse 31 of chapter 5 of Ephesians is actually a quote from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Uh, A quote from the time when God created the first man and woman and described what their marriage would be like. So intimate, it's like that they're one person. And that's been our understanding of marriage ever since, that the two will become one flesh. But Paul says that that quote from the beginning of time was actually about Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery, he says. It's deep. And it seems like no one really realized it was a mystery until Christ came along. But but now Paul makes a link and says that this is what marriage is all about. Our our human marriages are just a shadow of the marriage between Christ and the church. Put it this way. The marriage of Christ and the church is not like human marriage. It's the other way around. It's the pattern that all other marriages are supposed to follow. And so while we're really thinking this morning about the great marriage between Christ and the church, there are a few things that need to be said to married couples. uh, And I'm going to skim over these, really. We can go into detail another time. But firstly, wives, submit to your husbands like you would to Christ. Secondly, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And thirdly, your marriage those of you that are married, uh, like it or not, is supposed to show to other people what that relationship between Christ and the church is like. So make sure that yours is helping other people to see that more accurately. And I pray that as we try and understand this great relationship between Christ and the church this morning, you'll start to think more clearly about your own relationship. So let's look more closely at the relationship Christ has with his bride, the church. Uh, We'll look at verse 25 to 30, and we see that the church is loved by Christ. The church is loved by Christ. Uh, Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It starts with love. Christ loved the church. How did he do that? I'm sure uh, if we asked around the room this morning, Uh, we'd be fascinated by the the variety of ways that people like to show love to one another. Um, You'd find some people that really love doing things for one another. You'd find some people that love giving gifts as a a display of their affection. You might find some people that are really eloquent with their words and, and love declaring their love with speeches and songs and poetry and, and things like that. I don't know how many of, of you are poets. Um, but, but as we look at Christ, we actually see him express his love for the church uh, in various ways. But the main way he, uh, that Christ loved us, verse 25, is that he gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for her, the bride. And that's another way of saying that his love is a sacrificial love. Now, it's not just sacrificial in the way that we sometimes talk about it, um, I'm going to sacrifice the last donut for my wife. I'll go without so she can be happy. 
um, and she can enjoy it. There might be good reason to do that, but the sacrifice that Jesus makes for us is far more weighty than that, far more weighty than any donut or biscuit or cake. That Christ loves us sacrificially means that he literally sacrificed himself to save us. Now, God has always been very clear that sin deserves judgment and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Our sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of every human that have ever lived, need to be punished. But Christ was punished for us. He took that punishment in our place for our sins. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And that references Isaiah 53 and verse 5. But he was, this is Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That punishment that we deserve took place when Christ, though he was innocent, he was crucified, he was hung on a cross, he was mocked, he was despised, beaten, slaughtered like a lamb, and he did all that willingly for us, for his bride, for for the church. He loved us, and he gave himself up for us. And then look at verse 26. Why did Christ give himself up for his bride? Well, the answer is to make her holy. It matters to Christ that his bride would be holy. Because at one time, we were not holy. We were not righteous in any sense of the word. But look at the order of things. Christ loved the church to make her holy. Not... The church was so holy that Christ loved her. Isn't that encouraging? It is to me, anyway. How often do you feel like Christ couldn't love you because of your unholiness? Or how often do you feel like Christ might actually fall out of love with his church? Uh, How often are we tempted to, to think that Christ would give up on us? Well, if we believe these words in verse 25 and 26, then everything is different. If Christ loved you and gave himself up to make you holy, then in one sense the work is already done. If you're a Christian, he's demonstrated and he's proved his love for you by dying on the cross in your place for your sins. And so you're right. Holiness really does matter to Christ, which is precisely why he died for us. Firstly, to forgive us and to give us a right standing before God. And secondly, to make us more and more holy until we're presentable for a wedding day. Uh, Look at verse 26 again. He loves to make us holy and he cleanses us. Christ is cleansing the bride, washing her with water through the word. Uh, It's a funny phrase. What what does that mean? Um, It might be that Paul is uh, referring to the way that Christians get baptized when they become Christians, and then they go on to live according to the word of God. Uh, And those two things characterize a Christian's life. 
baptism signaling the, the, the new birth, the start of a Christian's life, and ongoing obedience to the word of God throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, and I am really excited and uh, pleased that we get to see two of our young people being baptized next week. Um, they'll be dunked in this pool of water, and it'll be a symbol to us uh, that they've died to sin and have come back to a new life with Christ. Uh, and you'll hear more about that next week, I'm sure. But one of the other things that baptism symbolizes is not just new life, uh, but it symbolizes what Christ does to us in washing us, in cleansing us. Now, Paul wasn't the first person to talk about uh, God's relationship with his people being like uh, a marital relationship. Uh, various places in the, the Old and New Testaments uh, where that relationship is, is described in marital, marital terms. Uh, one of those places is Ezekiel chapter 16. And uh, it's headed up in the NIV as Jerusalem as an adulterous wife. Uh, God tells Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, to give a message to Jerusalem, the city. It's quite a gory message in some ways. It's, uh, you need a strong stomach to read it. But he describes his people as being like an abandoned baby that hasn't even had its umbilical cord cut and is lying out in a field, kicking around in its own blood. It's a, it's a disgusting image. It's a horrific picture. But Ezekiel says that God saw this abandoned baby that, hadn't, uh, that was just lying out in the field and gave this baby life and gave this baby love. And as it grew up and grew old enough, God made a marital covenant with her. And he says this uh, in verse 9 of Ezekiel 16. He says, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace round your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. It's a beautiful description of the way God relates to his filthy, unholy people. And did you notice that first line? I bathed you with water. Just like Christ washes his bride with water through the word. Uh, th there are some things that need to be washed properly. Um, if you've ever spilt dinner down your tub, um, maybe Sunday lunch, bit of gravy goes dribbling down, the immediate reaction is often just to kind of scrape it off. Get your spoon out and just scrape it. Maybe you just rub it in a little bit. Uh, but all that really does is just smear the dirt around. Um, I'm sure you've had that experience. I have, anyway. Or, or when I was at, at school, when I was little, uh, we'd have to wash our hands before we go in for lunch. Uh, some of the boys, it was normally boys, uh, wouldn't bother. Uh, they'd just wipe their hands on their trousers and hope no one inspected too thoroughly. Uh, but in both of those cases, what really needed to happen was to have a bit of water, to actually wash your hands properly and do a proper job. And so I think that's what the image is here, that uh, that's what Christ does for us. He doesn't just brush a bit of dirt off. He doesn't try and do a bit of a patch-up job. He washes his bride completely, thoroughly. He washes her with water. And that's the picture Paul uses to describe how Christ washes us. Uh, but the method he uses is through his word. Christ washes us 
with water through his word. So do you realize that's what's happening as we hear and obey the word of God? When we do what the Bible says, as we hear and obey the word of God, we're actually getting ready for a wedding. Uh, And not just any old wedding, this is getting ready for our wedding. The wedding between Christ and his bride, the church. You wouldn't dream of turning up to your own wedding uh, in dirty, smelly clothes with rips in. Uh, You probably would spend hours getting ready, particularly the ladies, maybe. I don't know. Just making sure there's not a hair out of place. But that's also what Christ does for his bride. Uh, Verse 27 uh, talks about how he's keen that his, his bride is presentable for a wedding. No stain, no wrinkle, no blemish. Uh, It it might take hours for the bride to get ready on her wedding day, but in some ways it's taking years for the church to get ready for the great wedding day. But it is worth it. And so it's worth listening to the word of God. Uh, It's worth coming together to gather as a church each week to, to hear God speak to us through his word, the Bible. Uh, It's worth it when we share scripture with one another and and point each other to Christ. Um, As we share scripture and try and uh, encourage each other, to rebuke each other, correct and instruct each other from God's word. And and sometimes that actually seems a bit painful, especially when we're being rebuked or corrected. But it's worth it for the joy of being presentable before Christ on that wedding day. Uh, Another the thing I'm thinking of when I was little uh, as a little boy my mum would sometimes find some dirt on my face and come and scrub it off and it was always just that little bit hard just really pushing in to try and rub that dirt off it always hurt just a little bit but it was worth it I think Um, mum seemed to think so anyway Uh, it was worth it that I would have a clean face Uh, and so it is worth listening to the word of God it's worth submitting to his word. We're looking forward to a great day, a wedding day. Um, This greatest of all weddings, the wedding to end all weddings. But how should we treat each other in the meantime? Well, firstly, let's uh, look forward to the glory of the church uh, in the future, Uh, not just the frustrations of the present. Uh, We can get so bogged down, I think, sometimes, with things that are ultimately a bit petty uh, and inconsequential, that we actually forget what Christ is doing and what we're getting ready for. So let's remind each other that there is a wedding day to get ready for. Let's help each other to get ready for it. Uh, Let's use scripture in our conversations together. Let's listen carefully to what the Bible says. Uh, Let's warn people where they're getting off track. Holiness is important. So let's encourage each other towards being presentable to Christ. Secondly, if Christ loved the church before he made it holy, then maybe we should do likewise. None of us are the finished article just yet. So let's show grace to one another as we see those imperfections, those stains and wrinkles and blemishes in each other. Christ loved the church before it was ever holy. Let's do the same. Uh, And in all of this, we need to 
act humbly and in a way that submits to Christ. So let's look finally at uh, verse 21 to 24. Uh, The church submits to Christ. Uh, Verse 23 says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. So is Paul mixing his metaphors here? Um, I thought we were talking about church being a bride. Uh, Now he's talking about church being a body. Uh, Now, in actual fact, we will be thinking about uh, church being a body in a couple of weeks' time. So is Paul mixing his metaphors? Uh, No, because verse 31, the two will become one flesh. There's a sense in which uh, a married couple become... That's an annoying sound, isn't it? Uh, A married couple become one body as they commit to one another and share their life together. And not just talking in terms of the act of consummating their marriage. There's a reason why when you talk to people who've lost a spouse, that they often talk about it in terms of, of their loss, uh, in terms of feeling like a part of them has been cut off, been amputated. And, and part of the reason for that is because God's plan for marriage is for a man and a woman to become one body, one flesh. And so just as marriage is described as a man and a woman becoming one flesh, so the church and Christ also become one. Christ is the head, and the church is the rest of the body. He is the head of the church and its saviour, we read. And so if anyone is worthy to be submitted to, it's Christ. And some people don't like to think of submission uh, in terms of, a good thing or anything joyful. Uh, people like to think of submission as, as, as being something oppressive and cruel. And it's true, some people do actually treat it like that. But in the context of the marriage between Christ and the church, nothing could be further from the truth. Christ never shows even a hint of cruelty or oppression towards his bride. There's an awful phrase. Um, I don't know if it gets used much, uh, about the idea of treating her mean and keeping her keen, how you relate a husband to a wife. And that is totally the opposite of how Christ treats the church. Christ shows that deep, sacrificial, and everlasting love. You see, you can sometimes make someone submit to you by force, and plenty of people have done that in the past. But Christ has no need to use force. And we have no need to fear submitting to him. We we have such a loving saviour. So why would we not want to submit to him? Sometimes we don't want to submit to Christ, to do what he says, because we're tempted to think that he doesn't love us that he's only interested in us for for what he can get out of us. And and sadly, that might be true of many earthly marriages. But it's absolutely not true about Christ. He loved us and gave himself up for us. So in terms of submission this morning, how are we going to submit to Christ? Well, firstly, if you're not a Christian, if you've never submitted to Christ, then today's the day. You've seen a picture of how Christ loves his people. You've seen in the picture of how Christ wants to 
not just kind of trample his bride and, and put her down and force her to submit, but you've seen a picture of how Christ loves and cherishes his bride. And you can be part of that. If you're not a Christian, the first step of submitting to Christ is to acknowledge your sin, acknowledge his salvation, and turn to him. But for the rest of us, those that have submitted to Christ, and have perhaps done so for many, many years, we need to keep on submitting to Christ. This, this wasn't something that happened when we first became Christians, and now we can do whatever we like. No, we need to go on submitting to Christ as our head. If we don't submit to Christ, it's like we're trying to chop the head off the body and run around like a headless chicken. We need to submit to Christ and do what he says. And so maybe, just in the context of this passage, the, the submission you need to, to show is in how you treat your spouse. Husbands, you need to love your wives. Maybe that is your act of submission to Christ this morning. Wives, you need to submit to your husbands, and that would be your act of submission to Christ. But there's all sorts of ways that the Bible speaks to us in our different situations uh, and different circumstances, and we need to be careful that we personally submit to Christ and that we as a church in everything we do together need to be submitting to what Christ says in his word, not just what works for us, not what seems pragmatic at the time, but what Christ says is good because he wants to present us holy uh, and acceptable and, and pleasing. So I, I don't know what the, the greatest wedding you've ever been to was. Uh, maybe it wasn't your own wedding. But whether we're happily married or unhappily married or not married at all, we do have a wedding day that we can look forward to. And so let me close with these words from the book of Revelation. Uh, where John sees a vision of the future, uh, a vision of what that wedding day might look like. Revelation chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then skip to verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now that is a, a breathtaking image of what the church will be like one day. And it's an image that, that we actually get to be a part of one day. So as we have fellowship with one another, as we're chatting over coffee, maybe after the service, as we uh, are a church together, not just as we come to church, but as we 
uh, as we are a church together, let's always have in mind the preparations for that great wedding day.